Well, good morning. It's good to be together today on this crisp morning. Uh, I guess it's somewhat crisp for us in Southern California, but um, I don't think we really know what cold is like. Uh, this is, this is uh, beautiful weather. And it is good to be together and to experience the warmth of Christian fellowship and to be together to lift up these songs of praise and adoration uh, to our God. I, I hope that your, your heart, as it were, is, is tuned to worship Him. And it's, you know, our worship service, as we say often, is not just the singing, right? It's, it's the preaching, it's everything that we do, the reading, the singing of God's Word, and the hearing of God's Word proclaimed. And today we will be continuing our exposition in the epistle of Jude. If you want to turn to the second to last book of the Bible, turn to Jude. Our text today is verses 5 to 7, verses 5 to 7, and the title of the message is The Doom of the Apostates. Um, The Doom of the Apostates, or to put it another way, the apostates indeed God will judge, and he has judged them. It's interesting when there's national disasters, there's been a lot of tornadoes uh, lately, and uh, there's always things going on around the world. There's just a cyclone um, near the missionary we support in India. Uh, There's these kinds of national disasters, and oftentimes people want to pinpoint God's judging, you know, by sending this to this particular region, and and some of those might be the 1994 uh, earthquake, some of you remember that, um, where the large part of the porn industry is produced in that area, and people, aha, God sent it because of that. And maybe he did, maybe he didn't, it's speculation. Or the tsunami of 2005, I think, or maybe it was 2004, Christ, the Christmas Eve, um, a large amount of Muslims were wiped out, um, or maybe another one is the AIDS epidemic, where initially that, um, that homosexual community was the ones being plagued with that. Of course, now we know it's, it's an epidemic in Africa uh, being spread around, but all of those things are speculation, but, but today in our text, we actually have clearly set before us, God is the one who has brought judgment largely because of unbelief and rebellion. Because of unbelief and rebellion, God has sent judgment. And what a contrast it is to uh, even the people of God, the ancient Jews who were the, the, you know, God's chosen people, as it were, walking with God and then yet God kills so many of them. All these judgments again and again, and then ultimately what we've read of in Numbers 13 and 14, where all the adults would die off. It's an amazing thing to think about. And, 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 and even the text, the way it says is here, the Lord, after saving a people, destroyed them. Why? Because of their unbelief. Because of their rebellion. Uh, you know, you think about the, those chapters in Exodus where, where, where they're moaning and the people of God after 400 years of bondage and, and Lord, deliver us, Lord, deliver us. And finally, he raises up a deliverer, right? With Moses, he, he raises up a deliverer. He, he provides deliverance. He brings the Passover to wipe out the firstborn in Egypt. They, they're departing. The Red Sea is parted. I mean, all of these miracles. And what do the people do? They grumble and complain, oh, for the days of Egypt, can I just go back to Egypt where our bellies were filled and we could have bacon and this and that and the other thing? No, I mean, it's folly. And then, of course, that example with Caleb and Joshua, which we'll talk about in a little bit, that was it. That's when God said, that's what we read. That's when God said, that's it. Every one of you will die off, except for two. 
Caleb and Joshua. Of course, Paul writes in the New Testament, these things had to have happened as examples for us that we would not crave the things that they did. And so these are written for our instruction. In other words, we, we, we have to conclude from the text today that unbelief is the damnable sin that will for sure send you to hell. If you're denying who God is, if you're walking in rebellion, you will go to a place of eternal torment and hell, and we wish that upon no one. There is no remedy for that sin of unbelief. Paul puts it differently in Romans, a similar theme. For whatever was written in earlier times was written for our instruction. But now listen to this, to the people of God. So that through perseverance and the encouragement of the Scriptures, we might have hope as the people of God through the encouragement of the Scriptures. So let's read the text. I'm going to just go back to verse 3 to get the broader context. We're going to read verses 3 to 7, so follow along as I read. Beloved, while I was making every effort to write to you about our common salvation, I felt it necessary to write to you appealing that you contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all handed down to the saints. For certain persons have crept in unnoticed, those who were long beforehand marked out for this condemnation, ungodly persons who turn the grace of God into licentiousness and deny our only Master and Lord, Jesus Christ. Now I desire to remind you, though you all know these things once for all, that the Lord, after saving a people out of the land of Egypt, subsequently destroyed those who did not believe. And angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned that proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh, also exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Let's pray. Father, once again, we confess that we are weak, O Lord. We Oftentimes, our faith can waver uh, here and there, even as true believers. And, and Lord, uh, we, we want to pray, help my unbelief. I believe, but help my unbelief. And, and Lord, strengthen our faith, fortify our faith this day under the hearing of your word. We pray that you would speak by your spirit to each and every heart, Lord. We pray that, that, that we would sense your presence here. We pray, Lord, that, that a, a healthy fear of God would result as we think about the terrible judgment and the, the eternal damnation that awaits those who continue in rebellion and unbelief before you. Humble our very hearts this day. Increase our own healthy reverence for you, O God. And Lord, may it spark deep down within our heart as a bubbling brook, just renewed thankfulness for your grace and for your mercy that has been poured out upon us as your children. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, just by way of context and review, um, the last sermon we spent the whole time on just verses 3 and 4, which are very, very important for us. But 
Uh, we've, we've noted that heretics are as old as mankind. I mean, almost all the books of the New Testament address false teachers. And so it, it, is, uh, it's been, it was common in the first century. It's common today. It seems especially common today, but maybe it's because of all the media that we were more aware of it. Back then, they had to travel on the back of an animal or walking, so it wouldn't spread quite as quickly. But it has been around. And so this book is a passionate plea to take up spiritual arms, to engage in battle. To engage in battle, to fight for the truth. Why? Because it's a good fight. It's a noble fight. It's worth fighting for. And, and Jude here, he, he sits down to, to write. And it says, I was making every effort to write about our, our common salvation. And so to write about those beautiful things of, of our adoption into the family of God, of our, of our justification in the court of heaven completely outside of us, of, of the gift of repentance and of faith. And, and as I was going to write about those things, suddenly I was alarmed and I was alerted to the fact that there's a cancer as it were, in the church. They've crept in like unwanted roaches. They've come in like unwanted rats through a little crack under a door. And now they've infiltrated the church, and so he feels compelled to address this very thing. And what does he say about them? Long beforehand, they were marked out for condemnation. What else? That they, they were ungodly. That is absolutely no reverence whatsoever for God. They, they were, what, what, what does it say about them? That they turned the grace of God into licentiousness. They were given to sexual wickedness and perversion and, 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 and just a license for sin. And then the last example there in verse 4 is that they deny their Master and Lord. So maybe by their words as they're in the church, they profess that I believe Jesus is Lord, but by their actions they deny it. And so that brings us to this section here today. As he says, he wants to remind us, and he gives us really three examples from history, from biblical history here to ponder. Remember we talked about Jude loves threes, and here's another one. There's three examples. We'll see three more in verse 11. We've already seen several threes. Uh, He loves triads. So the three illustrations described the concept of this condemnation in verse 4. The Israelites who were judged in the desert, the fallen angels, and the perverted citizens of Sodom and Gomorrah. For us today, we need to be reminded, and even of some of the other New Testament warnings, that that as Paul says in 1 Timothy 4, the Spirit explicitly says that in the latter times, some will fall away. What does that mean? It's apostasy. You know, that the, the person that you're rejoicing over because they made a profession of faith, but down the road, sometime later, they've fallen away. In other words, they're not true believers. And these apostates are characterized in this letter and throughout Scripture as, as, as prideful, as those that grumble, as those who slander and, and even uh, Jude uses various uh, uh, terminology here. They're like unreasoning animals. You ever tried to, to tame a, a new puppy? It's like an unreasoning animal. It takes a while to train. Or, or an unbroken horse. And now, it's interesting. We've, we've uh, already alluded to, as you know, the, the similarities with Second Peter chapter 2. There's a lot of parallel. I think... Um, I think Jude was written first. I think Peter is um, borrowing off of that. It could be the other way around. They were written probably within a year of each other. But Peter uses 
Three examples also. The angels, Noah, and Sodom and Gomorrah. Well, what Jude uses is the apostate Jews, the angels falling, and then the Sodom and Gomorrah, which could be considered as the Gentiles. So first of all, verse 5. The ancient Jews were judged for their unbelief. We've already talked about this some. This is apostate Israel. Now, first of all, in verse 5, he says, I desire to remind you that you know all things once and for all. He, he compliments the readers. You're not dumb. You know these things. I'm, I'm going to remind you of these things. And it's a reminder for us and those of us who teach and preach that all teaching doesn't have to be coming up with something new. In fact, that's where people get in trouble sometimes is, well, I've, I've kind of exhausted the basic truth. I've got to come up with something new and exciting to, to compel the, the, the hearers to say, isn't he so wise? You know, woe to me if I ever say, I've come up with a, a conclusion in my hermeneutical study of the scriptures that no one's ever come up with before. <laughs> Examine me very, very carefully. Take me to task. But, but much of our teaching is reminding of those things of which we already know. Let me just give you a few examples. How about as far as how a husband is to love his wife? As Christ loved the church, we can say that, we can memorize that, but can we do it easily? No. It's very difficult. We need to be reminded of those things. For a wife to submit, when it says back in Genesis 3 that her desire will be for the man, she needs to be reminded of those things. Practically, what does that look like? The raising of children. There's, there's just several aspects that we need to be reminded of. Even those core doctrines that we hold dear in our confession, you know, of the Holy Trinity, of predestination, of justification, when we, when we teach those things, it's not because nobody's ever heard of those. Most of us are familiar, but we need to be reminded and more grounded in those things. Peter alludes in 2 Peter 1.12, Therefore, I will always be ready to remind you of these things, even though you already know them and have been established in the truth. Peter begins his second letter like that. Now it says that the Lord, some of the early manuscripts have Jesus. Um, those are largely discounted these days, but it is the Lord. It's referring to God. That's the way it is in 2 Peter here. After saving a people of the land... Of Egypt. Now we've already talked about it with the Red Sea parting. The Lord delivers his people through there, and yet they come through and they're grumbling and grumbling and grumbling. Finally, the spies are sent out into the very promised land for which he, he promised them, right? And what happened? Ten of the twelve come back with a poor report, a bad report, right? They come back and they say, we were, like, we were like grasshoppers in their sight. There's no way our God could, could, could beat these people, except for two, right? And that's what Numbers 13 and 14 were. We had to be selective with what we read. Go home and read those chapters in their entirety. It's very, very important. This is only, it's between the first and the second year of the 40-year wilderness journeys, it's why they went around for 40 years. And it's pretty phenomenal. In Numbers chapter 1, Numbers is called Numbers because there's a lot of numbers, but how many men are there? 600,000 men already at the beginning of the Exodus. We can assume there was probably about the same amount of women, give or take. That's 1.2 million people that were of 20 years old and older that had to die off over the next 38 years. 
And, and isn't it interesting that, that when they're grumbling and they're, they're, you know, they're giving the bad report, it's like our children will go in there and they will suffer. And what does God say? God says that the, the very children that you are concerned about, they will inherit the land. You will die off because of your stubborn unbelief. It's a remarkable thing. And you just think about that for the next 38 years. If you average that out, that's about 90 deaths per day. <laughs> okay, maybe there was more on certain days, maybe there was none on certain days, but just averaging out. In other words, there wasn't a day that didn't go by, Steve, that bodies were dying <laughs> around you. Maybe several per hour. It's a remarkable thing. And Jude brings this up as stubborn unbelievers. What a reminder for Jude's hearers that the Lord will destroy modern-day apostates and renegades and those who will not believe and those who rebel. The writer of the Hebrews addresses this very thing in chapter 3. If you, if you look at that, the quotes from Psalm 95 and, and so forth. Therefore, if you hear his voice, what? Do not harden your heart as they did in the wilderness. Hebrews 3.17 and with whom he was hang- angry for 40 years. Was it not those who sinned, whose bodies fell in the wilderness, and to whom he did, or did he swear that they would not enter his rest, but those who were disobedient? So we see that they were not able to enter because of unbelief. There it is again, of unbelief. Unbelief is utter fo- folly. Brothers and sisters, boys and girls, you can't be saved apart from faith. Faith in Christ and His finished work. And this is proof that even men of great privilege can't escape judgment if they fall away, if they harden their hearts, if they're given to unbelief. John Calvin said the blindness of unbelievers is in no way detracts from the clarity of the gospel. The sun is no less bright because a blind man does not perceive its light. John Bunyan in Pilgrim's Progress gives this beautiful, uh, a beautiful allegory, but, but even on that, I believe it's the last couple pages, as he's, as he's entering heaven, he sees there one person who is encountered with a few times named Ignorance who was taken by the angels when he was trying to cross the river of death and trying to enter into heaven and was taken to the side of the hill of heaven and where a small door was there and sent to hell. And Bunyan says, there I learn that even at the very gates of heaven, there's an entrance to hell. Now why do I share that? Because it's a warning that outwardly you can look so good you might be able to have all the Christianese down and say all the right things. You might be able to fool your spouse. You might be able to fool your children. You might be able to fool the whole entire church. And yet in the end, it is God who knows your heart. And so it is folly to give yourself to unbelief. And so the ancient Jews is the first example we hear, have here. But the second example he gives us in verse 6 is that fallen angels who did not keep their proper place. Let's read it again. The angels who did not keep their own domain, but abandoned their proper abode, he has kept in eternal bonds under darkness for the judgment of the great day. Jude's second example concerns the apostate angels. 
the apostate angels. Now, angels were given many tasks. They're God's servants, right? Um, study Revelation 4 and 5. You see uh, the angels worshiping God and tending to the Lord. Psalm 104, he makes the winds his messengers and flaming fire his ministers. But yet, there's a segment of the angels that what? Rebelled. They rebelled. They've been given powers of position, positions of power and principalities and authorities. Paul makes reference to this throughout the epistles. Uh, far above all rule and authority, power and dominion, where every name that is named. Uh, Colossians 2, also the rulers and authorities. He's made a public display of them. So God also gave them task of serving Him, all of these various things, and yet they rebelled and God punishes them. Once they held authority, once they had uh, dignity and authority, but now they are prisoners in chains and awaiting that great day of judgment. We don't know the domain or dwelling of these angels. He's interested only in the theme that God punishes those who refuse to obey him. It is very difficult Again, as I say, when people are given authority and blessing and privilege, that sometimes they become proud, and wasn't that the main sin of the angels resulting in their disastrous fall? It says in Scripture, with that initial fall, that one-third of the angels fell. It's remarkable. And there's a play on words here. If you look at the word uh, keep, you see it uh, that they did not keep their own domain. Therefore, he has kept them in eternal bonds. That's that word that it's a word that occurs most often in Jude. But it's the word that to be guard or, or to imprison or to uh, th- that kind of thing. And so there's even a play on words here that they did not keep their positions authority. So now their positions of authority. So now God has kept them in the domain of darkness. They who did not guard their own positions ended up in darkness. Now, what exactly is Jude speaking of here? There's, there's a multitude of possible interpretations. We're, for the sake of time, we're not going to go through all of those. But I do want to mention two, and the first I've already alluded to. Is their pride and their rebellion under Lucifer in that initial fall? That initial fall could have, could have happened a long time before the fall of man, it could have happened on the same day as the fall of man. We're not told. It's speculation to go beyond that. But several verses speak of this. Isaiah fourteen twelve: How you have fallen from heaven, O star of the morning, O sun of the dawn. You have been cut down to the earth, you who have weakened the nations. But you said in your heart, I will ascend to heaven. I will raise my throne above the stars of God. I will sit on the mount of the assembly. In the recesses of the north, I will ascend above the heights of the clouds. I will make myself like the Most High. Nevertheless, you will be thrust down into Sheol, to the recesses of the pit. Other examples are, I believe it's Jeremiah 28, um, other verses speaking to this. So these angels resided in heavenly splendor. And, and, and complete beauty, uh, close to the Lord, and yet their pride under Lucifer and him drawing up many with him were cast down. Now the second view, as some of you may know, is in relation to Genesis 6 and verse 1 to 4. 
uh, where the angels left heaven and came to earth to seduce mortal women. And if you want to just turn to Genesis 6 very quickly, we'll, we'll look at this to at least read it, and then I'll tell you what I think. Now this is right before the flood. Now it came about when the men began to multiply on the face of the land that the daughters were born to them and that the sons of God saw that the daughters of men were beautiful and they took wives for themselves, whomever they chose. Then the Lord said, my spirit shall not strive with man forever because because he also is flesh and nevertheless his days shall be 120 and Nephilim were on the earth in those days, and also afterward when the sons of God came to the daughters of men and they bore children to them, those who were mighty men, who were of old men of renown. Now, there's uh, that particular verse, there's different interpretations of that. The word for Nephilim only occurs in one other place, ironically, in Numbers 13.33, describing how the Israelites felt as grasshoppers before the what? The giants, as, as it's referred to there. And so it could mean uh, giants. Um, it, it could be speaking of these um, demonized marriages, as it were, and the offspring that it produced. Uh, direct genetic link is impossible to the Numbers 13 because the flood wiped all of them out. Now, the writer to uh, their feet, first Enoch is the extra biblical book that we've alluded to that, that Jude refers to a couple of times. Um, it's not a canonical book, so it's, it's outside of, of Scripture, uh, but he does allude to it a couple times, and, and in that particular book, there is an, an explanation of that, so it would lean towards the second interpretation. Um, I'm not going to endorse either because Jude doesn't endorse either. The bottom line is this, is that he doesn't tell us which situation he's referring to. It's mere speculation to go beyond that. The, the point is this, is that instead of abiding in the created order that God had designed, they had rebelled God's created order and were confined to darkness, awaiting that great day of judgment. So we have, we've seen the example of the Jews, we've seen the example of the angels, and now the apostate Gentiles, as seen in Sodom and Gomorrah. Verse 7. Just as Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them, since they in the same way as these indulged in gross immorality and went after strange flesh and exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. Now this third example is probably the clearest that we have here. Um, throughout the Old and New Testaments, the cities of Sodom and Gomorrah are symbols of what? Immorality, wickedness, foul immorality, perversion, judgment, all of these things. And there is a lasting destruction by fire and brimstone. It mentions the, the towns around them, which were also destroyed in Genesis 14.12. You can uh, see those towns. Uh, there was one that was spared at the request of Lot. He wanted to go to Zor, very, one of the smaller towns, and so God spared it, as it says in Genesis 19. Behold, I grant you this request, not to overthrow the town of which you have spoken. Hurry, escape there, for I cannot do anything until you arrive there. Therefore, the name of the town was called Zor. 
Now, we don't have time to look at the whole account in Genesis 19. I'll read a few verses, verse 1 and 4 and 5. Now, the two angels came to Sodom in the evening as Lot was sitting in the gate of Sodom. And when Lot saw them, he rose to meet them, bowed his face to the ground, and invited them to his house. Before they lay down, the men of the city, the men of Sodom, surrounded the house, both young and old, men from every quarter. Those are important phrases, okay? It's not just a certain age group. It's just not the Hillcrest area. It is from every quarter of this town. Uh, speaking of its perversion, how it has infiltrated the whole town, okay? Young and old, men from every quarter. And they called to Lot and said to them, where are the men that came to you tonight? Bring them out that we may have relations with them. Of course, you know the, the story here, which is repeated in other places of the scripture, offering his virgin daughters instead. But no, they no, we will not have that. What a picture of the wickedness. And apparently these cities, as I read, were, were located in very beautiful areas. And, and sometimes God allows wickedness to flourish in some of the most beautiful places. Isn't that interesting? I mean, look at us here in Southern California, or just say California in general. How much perversion and how much wickedness has been conceived up here, has been born here, has been propagated and sent out from around the world? You can think of heresy. You can think of many of these false teachers where they're headquartered out is here. The TBN satellites that are in probably 250 countries around the world is centered from Southern California. A lot of this perversion and stuff from the Bay Area and down here is propagated here in Southern California. So sometimes God allows places that are very beautiful uh, where they become, people become so idle and given to wickedness. And having extra time and, and on your hands is a recipe for disaster. Homosexuality and sodomy came about, which departs once again from the natural order uh, to those things which are unnatural. Study Romans 1. God gave them over. God gave them over to believe a lie that they would do those things that are not natural. And the word he uses here in verse 7 uh, speaking of the gross immorality is, is pornea with a preposition on the front of it. We've talked about how he loves to throw prepositions on the front of uh, a certain words uh, that we're familiar with, and it, and it intensifies it. It's to indulge in illicit sexual relations and debauchery. J.C. Ryle calls this, uh, situ or this uh, event a repulsive incident, and that's what it is. It's repulsive. It's horrible licentiousness, not simply with women, not with their wives or, or in the other nations, but, but with those unnatural uses, as it says in Romans 1. And, and the word that is used is, is, is speaking of sodomy. And how did it happen? How did this destruction happen here? Did God rain fire and brimstone? Was it, there's all these theories that there's a volcano there, that that erupted, and then there was oil and gas deposits, which just caused things to explode. Again, it's speculation. We know that God judged the place and wiped it out, right? We know that much. So we don't have to go down rabbit trails. Now, brethren, mark it well. Sodom never occurs in the Bible again as a living city. There was never Sodom II that was built uh, you know, 50 years later or whatever. 
Uh, But the memory of its sin and consequent destruction is kept alive through all the biblical writers. The prophets refer back to this. Jesus refers back to this. The Apostle Paul and the other apostles refer back to this. Why? Because it is a, it's, it's like the par excellence example of God's judgment. And in just such a small way, as this was a huge event, but that's just such a small picture of the coming judgment on that what? Last day. Sodom and Gomorrah and the cities around them in the same way indulged in sexual immorality. I think he's drawing off all three of these examples, the turning the grace of God into licentiousness, denying the only master, it's the disobedience, it's the unbelief that's being repeated again and again. Perhaps Jude is is paraphrasing it like this, as one commentator said, that as the angels fell in their lust for the women, assuming that second interpretation, so the Sodomites desired the sexual relations with angels. Angels desiring the women, the, the verse before, and then the men desiring relations with the angels. Now, the point is this, is that this serves as an example. Read to the end of verse 7. And so, they went after strange flesh, are exhibited as an example in undergoing the punishment of eternal fire. The, the ESV has its serves. I, I like the NAS better. It's exhibited. In other words, it's put into open view for all that this is example A, or, or evidence A, however they say that in the courtroom, uh, that, that this, is ex- this, is, this is proof that God will indeed judge the wicked And even that aspect of eternal fire, uh, which Christ spoke of so much, Matthew 25, 41, then he will also say to those on his left, depart from me, accursed ones, into what? The eternal fire, which has been prepared for the devil and his angels. This idea of fire and brimstone finds itself in the last book of the Bible in Revelation as well. Revelation 19 and verse 20 The beast was seized, and with him the false prophet who performed the signs in his presence, by which he deceived those who had received the mark of the beast and those who had worshipped his image. And these two were thrown alive into the lake of fire, which burns with brimstone. Chapter 20 and verse 10. And the devil who deceived them was thrown into the the lake of fire and brimstone where the beast and the false prophet are also and they are tormented day and night forever. What a terrible thing. The writer of the Hebrews, how much severe punishment do you think he will deserve who has trampled underfoot the Son of God and regarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. What does the writer say? It's a terrifying thing to fall into the hands of the living God. And brethren, this is why I say that some of us maybe need to check our level of reverence for the Lord and our healthy fear of the Lord. And I'm not talking about 
I've got to question my salvation. Am I really saved? But it's a reverence for God because he's altogether holy. That's why he judges the wicked. So these three examples, uh, Judas painted some powerful pictures of apostasy, of even the chosen people of God, of the Jews, and then even of angels, the very servants of God, and then even of the pagan Gentiles in Sodom and Gomorrah. Have you received assurance of salvation, forgiveness of your sins? Are you outside of Christ today? Will you be facing and standing before this God? Let me read once again from Revelation 20, verse 11. Then I saw a great white throne, and him who sat upon it, from whose presence earth and heaven fled away, and there was no place found for them. And I saw the dead, the great and the small, standing before the throne, and the books were opened. And another book was opened, which is the book of life. And the dead were judged from the things that were written in the books and according to their deeds. And the sea gave up its dead, which were in it. And death and Hades gave up the dead, which were in them. And they were judged, every one of them, according to their deeds. Then death and Hades were thrown into the lake of fire. This is the second death, the lake of fire. Now, I don't read those words to try to put some type of, you know, fear into you but it's scripture and it's really the destiny of those who are outside of christ maybe your loved one maybe your parent maybe a grandparent your child if they haven't made a profession your neighbor your co-worker your boss it could it describes anyone who's outside of christ and how this should burden our hearts with a burden for souls to want to share the hope that is within us, to, to want to share the good news of the gospel, to want to go to that coworker on Monday morning and look for that divine opportunity to say, I've been friends with you for two years. I, we've, we've talked shallowly about the weather and maybe a little golf and a little football, but I have to ask you a question. Are you right with God? Have you bowed the knee to the one that you will stand before someday? And then to preach what a beautiful and wonderful Savior Jesus is. That He stood in my place as a substitute. He took all of the punishment I deserved. And by the way, I'm a wicked sinner too. <laughs> he took it all and He gave me His righteousness. That's my only standing. Nothing in my hand I bring. Simply to your cross I cling, O God, that needs to be our disposition. Spurgeon said, unbelief will destroy the best of us. Faith will save the worst of us. Unbelief will destroy the best of us, but faith will save the worst of us. So it's not about external reformation and getting your life together. It's about running to Christ today while the day of opportunity exists and not postponing it. And those of us who are in Christ, as I already said, to, 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 to just have this thankfulness, this appreciation, this attitude of gratitude for the salvation that we enjoy, how this should fuel our worship and our adoration as Brother Steve began the service with, knowing that we have been chosen and that we are being sanctified and that we will persevere unto the end. As he says at the very beginning of his letter, he writes to those, he doesn't say where, to the called, to the beloved in God, the Father, and who are kept for Jesus Christ, who are guarded 
who are safe. What did Christ say? No one will snatch them out of my hand. And my Father who is greater than I, no one will snatch them out of, out of His hand. Our salvation is secure. Ultimately, the acceptance of the gospel is a moral problem. It's not an intellectual problem. To try to argue with people and, and try to talk them into it, it's a moral problem. They need to bow the knee before Christ. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for Your Word. And Lord, even difficult passages like this that speak of your just judgment against wickedness and unbelief and rebellion. Lord, may it be a wake-up call for us and your church. And Lord, may we be those that are looking out for those that might be slipping away. May we be seeking to spread the gospel to those who may be outside of Christ. And all the while, it's because we know that you're sovereign and because we believe in predestination that fuels our evangelism. It gives us hope because we know outside of that all men are dead in their trespasses and sins and none will respond. And so, Lord, may we have great encouragement to loosen our tongues, to share the good news. We thank you, Lord, that we can gather together in this fashion and even now that we can take of the Lord's Supper, remembering what Christ has done for us, remembering his body broken and bruised and his sinless, precious blood spilt on our behalf. Lord, we pray that you would be glorified, not only in each of our lives, in our family, but in our churches as well. In Jesus' name, amen. Take your red Trinity hymnal, we'll sing our final hymn, and then go into the...